Hello and welcome to A History of Alexander the Great Remastered. Episode 3 Philip and the Macedonians. Last week, we looked at how the Greek cities declined throughout the classical period, eventually being overtaken by Macedon in the second half of the 4th century BC. This is half the story, and today we tackle the other half. Just how did the little kingdom of Macedon, something we have yet to seriously explore, take on Greece? This is what we will start off with today. We have a very murky understanding of the origins of Macedonia. It appears that in the Iron Age, at the same time as the Mycenaean period of Greece and the great Ionian and Doric migrations, that the people who would become Macedonians began settling the hills of modern-day northern Greece. It would be a while before they would gain access to the plains and the sea. The hills to the north are known as Upper Macedonia, the plains by the sea are known as Lower Macedonia, for obvious reasons. The original word for them, Macedones, means highlanders. It's possible that they were related to the Greeks, particularly the Dorian Greeks. It is undecided whether or not Macedonian was a dialect of Greek or a different language. There appear to be some instances of Macedonians talking to Greeks without needing a translator. This is important to the debate of whether the Macedonians were Greeks, but for us today this is not particularly important, so we shall leave that debate alone. It is a highly interesting one, and I would recommend giving it some of your time. Around 700 BC, there seems to have been another Macedonian movement, although there is much disagreement about this. It seems they began to move onto the plains, looking for better land. There became some disjointment between those who stayed in the mountains and those who moved. If that is the early history of the Macedonian people, what of their kings? There is a traditionally complicated tale of ancestry by which the Macedonian kings were actually Greeks, descending from Argos, and were related by this to Heracles and Perseus. In the world of Greek mythology, this made the Macedonian kings related to the Persians, as it was widely stated that because Perseus and Persia sound similar, they must obviously be related. Who knows if they really believed what they said, but I hope they did. Anyway, the story goes that the exiled Argive, Perdiccas, was doing work at the house of the local ruler with his two brothers. As it was their time to leave, the ruler refused to pay, offering only the sunshine that shone down the house's smoke vent. The offer was agreed, and Perdiccas used his knife to draw a line on the floor of where the sunlight shone. He then collected it and placed it in his garment. The three brothers were chased away, saved by a flooding river. They managed to settle a piece of land near the gardens of Midas, and used it to subdue the rest of Macedonia. This story could well be the origin of the Macedonian symbol, 
of the Radiant Sun. Players of the PC game Rome Total War Alexander will be familiar with this design. We're told that following Perdiccas, we have Argaius, Philip, Aeropus, Eclectas, Aminatas, and then our first really historical figure, Alexander. Alexander had been a satrap of the Persians, but had pushed for a more friendly relationship with Greece, seeing Macedonia's future there. Alexander emphasised the link to Argos, allowing him to compete at the Olympics. The Greeks didn't want much to do with the Macedonians, but they were a seafaring people, short on timber, which the Macedonians had plenty of. So Macedon continued to remain important within the Greek world. In 452, Alexander was followed by Perdiccas II. He suffered from dynastic disputes and was trying to expand his influence in the north, meaning that he could not play an important role in Greek affairs. His primary concern was keeping the Greeks out of Macedonia. To prevent one side taking advantage of him, he kept swapping between Athens and Sparta in the Peloponnesian War. This strategy worked rather well. Perdiccas was followed by Archelaus in 413. Archelaus created a road system and moved the administrative capital to the more central Pella from Aigai, which remained the sacred capital. All this had the greater effect of unifying the Macedonian people as communication between regions increased. He suffered from domestic disputes, just like his father had done. This forced him into harsh methods to maintain control. This concern led him not to adopt the phalanx. The adoption of it in Greece had weakened the aristocracy, and already suffering from domestic turmoil, Archelaus was very reluctant to introduce the reforms needed. As ambitious as the Macedonians were, their outdated military prevented them from advancing beyond their borders. The king struggled enough as it was with domestic revolts from rival claimants within the royal family. Then there were constant attacks by the Illyrians and Thracians to take into account, never mind Greeks, ready to take advantage of the situation for power in the north. Thrace and Illyria were both inhabited by powerful tribes, each working quite similarly to Macedonia. There was a royal household, any member of which could rule. This produced dynastic dispute, but successful kings would be powerful threats, such as Sitakles's Thracian Empire in the late 5th century, which stretched from Thrace out to the Danube and Black Sea. It was larger than mainland Greece for crying out loud. Just because they were barbarians doesn't mean they were weak. These were genuine threats. Cursebeptes, a king of Thrace, would prove one of Philip's greatest adversaries. Philip would need to be master of Greece before he could mount a decisive attack against Cursebeptes. The Illyrians, who lived in what is now Albania, are less well known, but were certainly a powerful threat. 
Archelaus died in 399. The event was followed, as you can by now imagine, by dynastic disorder. The next six years saw five kings from different branches of the royal family take over. Finally, after assassinating his predecessor, Aminasas III came to power in 393. Aminasas faced the same problems as his predecessors. Volatile and powerful neighbours who took advantage of him. He was twice deposed and needed foreign help to be restored. Aminatas relied on support from friends to the south, either Thessaly or Olynthus. To create friendship with Olynthus, he ceded a large amount of territory, including the capital, Pella. The Macedonians were forced to ask Sparta for help, themselves fresh off the victory in the Corinthian War, and they defeated Olynthus. We now enter the 370s, when Jason of Thessaly began to rise to power. He was something of a proto-Philip. Hemmed in by the rules of living in a polis, unlike Philip, Jason never managed to dominate Greece, though he would come close before his assassination in 370. The Macedonians tried resisting Jason, making an alliance with Athens, but they would later be forced into becoming subject allies of the tyrant. Aminatas had not had a successful period on the throne, but he had survived, and was one of very few Macedonian rulers to die of old age, so surely he deserves credit for that. He was succeeded in 370 by his son Alexander II, Alexander had an equally turbulent time on the throne, being assassinated within three years. He is notable for two things. Firstly, he was bullied into a pro-Theban policy. You'll remember that the Thebans had just defeated the Spartans at Leuctra. And he was forced to send his younger brother Philip to Thebes. Philip would learn much there. His second notable act, and his legacy was that he finally created a heavy infantry unit, the Foot Companions. These would be the nucleus of Philip's and Alexander's army. Perdiccas III became king following Alexander's assassination, though for the first few years, real power was held by the regent Ptolemy. The dynastic instability coupled with the heavy infantry not being ready, prevented Ptolemy from making any progress in his northern wars. As the years went by, things began to change. Perdiccas would find himself able to hold off the Greeks, as they fought over Amphipolis, a hugely important city to Athens, for its use in securing grain from the Black Sea. He would though be killed by an old enemy, the Illyrians. He was succeeded by his son, Aminatas IV, though he was soon replaced by his regent, Philip II. Philip had made the most of his three years in Thebes, studying their politics and military tactics. Unlike other Macedonian kings, 
he had witnessed Greek politics firsthand, allowing him to deal with them much better than any of his predecessors. In 359, he became regent, and once Alexander was born in 356, he declared himself king. He was immediately faced by all the old problems, but found himself able to deal with them. Through a mixture of gifts and brutal actions, he managed to find himself in control of the kingdom. Philip used this time wisely, developing the foot companions into a phalanx. He trained them in the Theban way. He introduced new weapons, such as the Sarissa, an 18-foot pike. To allow this huge weapon, the shield size was reduced, but to be fair with an 18-foot pike, you aren't really going to need a shield. This is called the phalangite arrangement. As the armour was lightened, it had the added benefit of increasing mobility. The reduction of the amounts of equipment needed also increased the potential manpower of the army. This would be a huge feature in Philip's wars. Sure, Athens could raise an army 5,000 strong quite easily. Philip had at his disposal an army which could be 30,000 strong. Much better trained, better equipped, and faster. The cavalry was expanded. The heavy cavalry, formed of the aristocracy, became Alexander's invincible companions. There was also the Lancaster cavalry, organised on a tribal basis. Philip trained the two elements of his army to work in harmony. The Thebans were considered to have a lot of cavalry with their 1,000. Philip had four times that figure. The great potential of the size of Macedonia had been unleashed. He didn't leave reforms for the field army only. He brought in technology from Syracuse, of torsion catapults. This was a game-changer. We've been following the huge sieges of the classical world. Athens had been trying for a good 30 years to take Amphipolis. Philip's war machines could allow him to take cities by storm, allowing Alexander to conduct the great sieges of his war, Halicarnassus, Tyre and Gaza. In a relatively short amount of time, not the decades it might have taken. Philip improved the administration system, increased communications. He created a group of royal pages from the sons of the nobility, who would become Alexander's great generals. With this in place, Philip began to expand. Philip stormed Amphipolis, a very bold move, which marked a breach with Athens. Athens was shocked, and, not understanding Philip's ambitions, thought that he would offer them the city once he had taken it, so they turned down requests for aid from the inhabitants. Philip took the city and kept it. While the Greeks had been so focused on themselves, a sleeping giant had been woken from its slumber.
In the mid-350s, civil war was raging in Thessaly, and one side offered Philip the leadership of the Thessalian League to lead them. As commander of their forces, Philip had control of Thessaly by 352, leaving the Greeks to fight their wars amongst themselves. He campaigned in Thrace, before having to turn against Olynthus, the still powerful city in the North Aegean, which was concerned about the growth of Philip. The Olynthians sided with Athens to take the Macedonians down a peg. The result was decisive victories by Philip, taking the city in 348, making Philip the most powerful man in the Greek world. In 346, a decision instantly regretted by the Athenians dropped their claims to Anthipolis. As the 340s drew to a close, Philip had beaten back all his enemies. He was master of the East, even copying the Persian system of provincial governors, the satraps, by appointing one to govern Thrace. He had secured good relations with the West through marriage alliances, such as the one with Olympus of Epirus, who bore Alexander to Philip. Greece was seething with resentment, and Philip nearly lost everything. The Greeks finally challenged him in 338 at the Battle of Chironia. Philip won a crushing victory. He created a peace which was to encompass the whole of Greece, and all of the Greeks would join his League of Corinth, of which he was the hegemon. The leader. The mission of the League was to invade Persia as revenge for the sacking of Athens. As Philip prepared to invade in 336, he was assassinated. The finally subdued barbarians and Greeks both immediately revolted. No one expected the inexperienced 19-year-old heir to do anything. But he would he would become Alexander the Great. If you enjoyed today's show, visit us online and all the usual stuff. I'll see you next week, when we finally begin telling the story of Alexander. <laughs>